All right, hi, my name is Cassie Perlongo. I'm a science communicator at the Bay Area Environmental Research Institute here at NASA Ames. And joining me today is Dr. Laura Arachi. She's from the Earth Sciences Division, and she's a research scientist in atmospheric science sciences. Laura, what I actually want to start out with is, you know, maybe if anyone hasn't heard about atmospheric science before, could you maybe explain a little bit about what it is and why is this an important field of study? It sounds pretty narrow, but from where I sit, it's actually a pretty broad field. So there's a lot that I don't address inside the bigger topic of atmospheric science. So there's a whole field that we think of as sort of meteorology or atmospheric dynamics, things about motions of the atmosphere. Those are my colleagues. Um, those aren't what I study, um, but I go to the same seminars and, and work with people who do those sorts of things because they really speak to um, the interfaces with the things that I study, which is the chemistry. So for mm. me, my area of interest is the atmospheric chemistry, the air pollution, the ozone destruction, the, the things like that that occur in our atmosphere. And then other people are, are interested in sort of how the atmosphere moves around and how the energy balance of the atmosphere affects other parts of the Earth system. So atmospheric science is a pretty broad field in that regard. Um, but I love talking about how things transform, how how molecules transform, how pollution forms and um, cleaned up naturally in our atmosphere, but also mm -hmm. how, how gases interact with particles and some things will get rained out of our atmosphere. There's a whole portion of atmospheric science that studies the particles in the atmosphere. So it's a, it's a broad ranging topic, but it's basically everything from the surface of the earth up to the orbit of the space station and whatever's going on in there. So it sounds like it's quite literally analyzing the air that we are breathing. Is that correct? Definitely. And, and trying to understand how to make predictions for the near term and longer term future. How are you capturing or uh, tracking these uh, trace gases and everything that's in the atmosphere? Mm -hmm. So the chemistry parts can be done, uh, can be studied either remotely by using, say, a satellite and looking down, and then you're just basically using photons, so you're using the light, either the light that you can see or actually the light that's missing is often the important part of that story. You can study the chemicals in the atmosphere either by looking, looking remotely, either down from a satellite or up from the surface of the Earth, too. You can have sort of an upside-down satellite if you want to do that. Or you can actually suck the air into your instrument and measure it that way. So whether that instrument is, you know, perched on the rooftop or even inside your lab if you want to know about indoor air quality. Or if that instrument is on an airplane or if it's on a, a drone, a, a UAS, or if it's on a balloon, there are lots of different ways you can analyze the compounds in the air by sucking them into a whole variety of different instruments. The ones that I generally use often rely on the way that light interacts with matter once it's been sucked into the instrument. But there are also ways that are based on chemical reactions that you can study, say, the ozone in the air that way. Mm -hmm. So right now you're working on, well, what campaigns, I should say, at, at NASA <laughs> are you working on? Because you're probably involved in a, several of them. <laughs> there's always, yes, always. There's always more than one thing on the plate. Uh, yeah. There's um, one project that's coming up soon that I'm starting to panic a little bit about because it's March already and we have to deploy in July. A campaign that's going to go to South Korea 
using an aircraft that flies up above the tropopause. So up kind of where commercial aircraft fly or a little higher, up around mm-hmm. 40 or 50,000 feet. And that aircraft is, is specialized for studying that region of the atmosphere, actually. And a whole bunch of folks from a whole bunch of institutions are going to bring their instruments, put them on that aircraft. And actually, there's a second aircraft as well. The campaign is called ACLIP, and it's a project being supported both by NASA and also by the National Science Foundation. So there's actually two aircraft going to be there. Tons of instruments and um, experimenters from mostly U.S., but also a few international participants as well. You know, each one is highly specialized, and we put them all together on the aircraft. And then uh, we'll be based at Osan Air Base, and we will study a particular phenomenon that happens in that place at that time of year. So every summer, there's a monsoon system, and I'm guessing most folks have heard of monsoons, right? They, they happen at certain times of year in certain places. The Asian summer monsoon actually has a lot of convection that really pumps up the air from the surface up high into the atmosphere. And this is a natural phenomenon, happens all the time, but what's changing is the fact that us dirty humans are putting a lot more stuff into that air before Mm. it gets lofted up. And once it's higher up in the atmosphere, it can travel around the globe pretty quickly. So this ACLIP campaign has been designed to go look at this monsoon, study that air as it gets lifted up and begins its transport across the globe. So it's super exciting. I've never um, studied in in that part of the world before. So it's a, a new set of maps to learn, which is always a challenge, right? Um, but it's a it's a neat phenomenon that allows me to think about chemistry that can happen pretty quickly. So that's fun. I'm looking forward to that campaign. So do you get to go as a research scientist on and be part of like the airborne um, and actually conduct the, sci- the science work on the airborne or do you get to do everything afterwards after all the data has been collected? All of it. <laughs> I'm really excited. So the aircraft that we're going to be using, the WB-57, does not carry scientists. It carries a pilot and one other crew member. And the crew member in the back seat operates all the instruments. And so the instruments mostly have to operate either autonomously or there is a downlink capability. So if, if your instrument fails, the person in the back seat can restart it for you or you can try sending commands through the downlink. I don't get to fly on that one, but we mm-hmm. will be in the hangar up at 4 a.m. to load the aircraft. You know, the instruments go on before dawn and all that good stuff. So I will be in the hangar sweating in what's supposed <laughs> to be pretty humid conditions in the summer. Um, we had our test flights in Houston last summer. So everything's gotten all munched up because of COVID. The campaign was supposed to go a couple of years ago. And anyway, we had our test flights in Houston last summer. And I grew up where it was kind of humid. I'd forgotten what 95% (laughs) humidity really means. That was, I mean, 4 a.m. is bad enough, but 4 a.m. at 95% humidity, that's just not okay. No, no, that's that's awful. not my favorite part. It's kind of like freshman year in the dorms, you know, when everybody shows up and they're like, okay, I... I'm here and I don't know anything. It's a brand new world. I have to meet all these people. And then by the end of the second day, you're all ordering pizza and working together. And the field campaigns are kind of like that, you know, pulls together people you've never met, people you've met before and haven't seen in a while. Everybody winds up in the same hangar at 4 a.m. complaining about the same bad coffee, but all (laughs) for the 
point of putting your instruments on the plane, measurements that when you put them all together can really tell a story and allow you to understand more about the atmosphere than you could do with just your one instrument alone. I like the shared camaraderie of like actually complaining about bad coffee together. Oh I think that sounds so great. <laughs> it's, you know, oh. just one of the the perks, I guess, of being a scientist and everything. Like, yeah, right? Just get a yeah. nice coffee machine. <laughs> um, well, that being said, I have to confess, I'm actually a tea drinker. And atmospheric sciences, right, atmospheric chemistry, we all have pollution worldwide, right? So it's an international field. Yeah. And I love going to meetings where there are more, either more Asians or more Europeans than there are Americans, or at least maybe the coordinating committee has an Asian or a European, because they'd make the best tea. Yeah. <laughs> the beverages are so much more balanced and diverse. Yeah. And it makes for good science, too, having different diverse you know, personalities and people. It makes for great science as well. It absolutely does, because where you sit, whether that's literally like look out your window and tell me what color your sky is today, mm-hmm. or where you sit sort of in an institution, if it's a, an academic institution or a federal institution, it changes the, the way you put the pieces together, right? The way you connect the dots. So when we sit here in the Bay Area, and I don't know if, if you were here for it, Cassie, or if your listeners would know, know have heard about this, but we had that horrible, horrible wildfire smoke. Yeah. That turned the skies orange. Yeah, that was it scary. It really changes the way you think about the sky when you realize yep. that's what the sky on Mars looks like. Why, yeah. why? Why is it the same color? Oh, it's because the particle size scatters the sunlight. You know, it just it really just changes the pieces that you pull together to solve the puzzle. And so having a team, right, that comes, some of them from from higher altitude sites like Boulder, some of them from other sides of the oceans where they have different, you know, standard weather patterns or different industrialization so that the pollution they emit is slightly different from what we get here in California. It really changes the quickness with which you can converge on an answer, I think. Right. Agree. You mentioned that grew up, I'm guessing on the East Coast because you said humidity. (laughs) You're not, not used to the humidity here. And that also your background is with chemistry. So can you tell me a little bit about young Laura? What was it like? What got you into the chemistry field? And was there a particular defining moment where you said, I need to do science work and it's going to be chemistry or did you just happen to fall into your lap? I think it was high school. I had two great chemistry classes in high school and I don't now remember clearly enough which one it was, but I think it was the first one that I had where we took stinky chemicals and turned them into good smelling chemicals. And I just remember that so that smell was so powerful, right? And it really was such a clear indicator to me that you could change these chemicals into other things. It, maybe that's what the whole alchemy, the draw of alchemy back in the day was, but it, it really was something that stuck with me, that you could learn how to manipulate matter to change it, to change the world around you. That high school chemistry class was really a piece of it for me, I think. I'm sure my parents would tell you that I was probably always pestering them with questions about how things worked. Chemistry really seemed to click for me more than any of the other sciences that I studied. So what are the hallmarks that make up like for a good scientist? Is it because you talked about asking questions, is it never really losing that curiosity as part of it? Boy, I would answer that question differently probably every year or every decade of my life. That you, If you would ask me that question in a different time, I'd probably answer differently. But right now, I'm feeling like the answer is persistence. 
there's a couple of sort of stories. I don't know either of these people well personally, not one of them at all or the other one well. There's these stories that are out there that are sort of legends now. One of them is the the story of the Kepler mission and how the, right. the principal investigator, Bill Baruki, had to try, was it 17 or some ridiculous number of times, he yeah. would apply to do his work and people turned him down and he would propose again and they would turn him down and they propose again. How do you have that kind of persistence? But thank yeah. goodness he did, because now how many planets have been discovered because of that mission that got turned down? How many times? I mean, it's just amazing. It's so inspirational in a way that, OK, so you're going to tell me no 17 times and I'm going to come back. And on the 18th time, I'm going to prove you wrong. <laughs> That's really fantastic. I find I find that hopeful. It's incredible to me because I can't think of it because I'm so coming into this such an elite stage now with Kepler, um, you know, having it so that we know now that planets are like ubiquitous, like they're they're everywhere. Yeah. Not, th- you know, exoplanet. We would have never known that had we not been able to get that telescope launched. And so kudos mm-hmm. to him for having yeah. I like that persistence. Is so a I think persistence these days, I think persistence is is maybe the maybe it's not specific to being a scientist, but it's certainly necessary mm-hmm. to have a career in the sciences. The other story mm-hmm. that I love is, again, this is one I was not personally involved in, so I just sort of know it the way it's been told in the community. The discovery of the ozone hole was accidental in a way. No one was expecting there to be an ozone hole. And the first data that was collected didn't make sense. The team that was collecting it thought, oh, maybe there's something wrong with our instrument. Then they got more data that still didn't make sense. They said, well, maybe we'll ask someone else. And so they went and asked the folks at NASA who were measuring ozone from a satellite because the team who actually had the first observations was on the ground in Antarctica. And so they went and they asked the NASA folks, and they're like, what are you talking about? We don't have any data that looks weird for ozone. They said, but <laughs> could, could you look again? I'm like, no, no, we, that stuff was all ridiculous. It couldn't possibly be true. There's something wrong with the instrument. So we threw that data out. Psst, buddy, mine too. Can you can you pull it out of the trash? Can we look at it? So <laughs> turns out they both had real data, but it was so unexpected that they didn't believe it. And yet it was true. And then missions were planned and executed to figure out what was going on. Why was there an ozone hole? What was causing it? How come we didn't see this coming? It all came from the persistence of the original observers who said, this doesn't make sense. I'm seeing this. I think the instrument is working. I don't understand it. I need help. I need people to come compare with me and, you know, got together with other folks. And sure enough, the crazy stuff is sometimes real. And if you're persistent enough to keep at it, you can figure out the answer. Was this where, you know, back in the 80s where they had a lot of talk and I think the 90s too about getting rid of the certain chemicals that were used in hairspray because it was contributing not only hairspray but to other things because it was contributing to to this? Well, yes and no. So so I grew up in the 70s and 80s. That was sort of my lived experience, right, was that they were working on getting rid of the chlorofluorocarbons from the spray cans that were predicted to deplete a few percent of the ozone worldwide over, you know, decades kind of thing. And it was this political struggle. How do you convince people that this thing you can't really see that's just a few percent over decades everywhere is is an important thing. They actually succeeded in banning the CFCs, at least in the U.S., I think in 1978. Some folks who were looking 
parts of those chemical compounds, uh, one of the C's in CFC is chlorine. And that chlorine gets released and does the damage to the ozone. And the space shuttle engines also release chlorine. And so there were some NASA folks looking into how might that chlorine affect ozone in the atmosphere. And then the ozone hole got reported. All the pieces finally clicked together that these are all the same processes, but when you have the particles that form over the winter pole, the ice particles that form especially over Antarctica, but also over the North Pole in the respective winters. When you have those particles, all of a sudden you get a lot more chemistry going on. And so the reality that ozone interacts with chlorine had been known and had been worried about. But what hadn't been realized is that these clouds over Antarctica, which are natural because it's so dang cold in the dark there, right? These natural clouds mix with the human release chlorine and nobody had seen that coming. That's incredible. And I'm starting to think atmospheric science might be one of the most important science disciplines that we need to actually be involved in <laughs> learning about all of these things. Heard about it. I love the way that you tell these stories to Laura. And in that sort of vein and that topic, are there any interesting things that you've worked on at Ames that maybe you'd like to share? Any cool discoveries or unexpected results? I haven't... Um solved all my unexpected problems yet that's for sure (laughs) (laughs) it's a work in progress (laughs) it's always a work in progress isn't it oh there have been some great projects so far at Ames Um, they never seem to be done there's always okay so we solved what we thought was the first problem and now we've got three more problems three more questions to solve but one of the things that I do like my focus has always been on the earth's atmosphere it's the planet I grew up on And it's the pollution that I breathe in every day. But there are other folks at Ames who study the atmospheres of other planets and other bodies in the solar system. And so that's been really fun for me. Back in the day when we used to walk up and down the halls of the same building working on site together, definitely bump into colleagues who, you know, study Titan or Mars. And so it's been really fun for me to see what parts of atmospheric chemistry translate from Earth to other bodies. And gravity is different. The amount of water is different. The sunlight is different. So I always find myself saying, oh, well, surely you don't have this problem on your planet. Well, yeah, we do. Why would you think that? I'm like, well, because gravity is so heavy or so strong. Like, um, have you noticed how small this moon is? (laughs) Mm. Oh, even gravity isn't constant. It's a fun field to think about the things you take for granted and the things you have to remember occasionally. There's not water everywhere. So the things that are so easy on Earth, like rain, are different. That's an important historical context, too, because you're right. I, I think initially how Ames was structured is that it was the Earth and space building. It was both of all the sciences were together. It wasn't split apart like how we have it organizationally now. People Mm -hmm. wouldn't know unless they looked at some bits of our website, but it's they're different divisions. And that's great. But before times in the long, long ago, it was (laughs) space science. It was one larger discipline together. And to, to your credit, what you're talking about, it makes complete sense to think about these things and how they translate over it yeah, and I, total I do think, and I do think it's important to physically locate people together so they can collaborate like that. Because I, I swear I go to the printer. I don't anymore, but I used to. You know, you go to the <laughs> printer and you go to pick up your whatever you were going to get, your data plot. And you find that somebody printed out something about dust on the moon. And you're like, 
you know, okay, so I'll, I'll read this while I'm waiting for mine to come out. And you look at the first paragraph and you're like, dust on the moon <laughs> has a different shape because it doesn't have water erosion. Oh, I wonder what that means about dust on earth in a desert versus dust on earth that comes from somewhere where it rains more. You know, just the stuff you find in the printer, the people you bump into at the coffee pot. It always comes down to coffee. <laughs> coffee or the teapot in, yeah. in our instance. So I'm really glad it, that we're co-located at Ames, even though, you know, even though we yeah. have different management you know, reporting structures. It's it's nice that we're co-located. Agreed. It goes back to that whole uh, age-old scenario that science does not happen in isolation. It happens <laughs> in a larger collaborative process. Completely agree with you. <laughs> the other thing I want to mention, this is now, we're kicking off Women's International Month. Yay! <laughs> Yay! <laughs> and recently had International uh, Girls and Women Day in Science, I believe. And so now on March 8th, it's going to be International Women's Day. And I wanted to ask you if you had any mentors or interesting women that you find particularly inspiring or even just aspirational. What I have always appreciated, actually, about being in the field of atmospheric chemistry, at least, is that there have always been plenty of women in all the roles for me to just take as completely normal role models. Nothing special about it, just as one of the team. So I've never really felt that I needed to be anyone different in order to fit in in my field, which is really great. There's a lot that happens based on who your thesis advisor is in graduates. They kind of set your tone and point your direction. And I was very fortunate that there was a, a female thesis advisor who really got me on the right path. I don't know that it mattered necessarily that she was female, but I just took it for granted that I could be that person, that she was there showing me what I could be. And it didn't matter my gender or her gender. So that was really nice. I think we have a long way to go in terms of having better streams in and making sure that we have better diversity within across all sciences and not just earth sciences. Do you find that maybe that there's a little bit better of a gender balance in earth sciences compared to maybe some other like space sciences or, you know, it can be completely mm -hmm. anecdotal. I'm not looking for actual examples, but do you think that there's better at least gender balance there? It's hard for me to answer that beyond okay. my experience at Ames in particular. Do you know is that when I was in college, which is kind of where you generally decide which science you're pointed towards, I think, I know that there were very few women in physics. And physics tends to be where astronomy grows out of. I would expect that in general, in astronomy, there might be fewer women than there are, say, in atmospheric chemistry, or certainly in the biological sciences, you hear anecdotally that there are plenty of women in, in the biological science. I don't actually know that I could answer that specifically for a science, but I do know that when I was studying atmospheric chemistry and I looked at classmates who were in other types of chemistry, like organic chemistry, that the gender balance was different in other subspecialties within chemistry. You might mm -hmm. be onto something that earth science is something that has a maybe a, a longer tradition of a, a better balance. I was thinking a little bit about the questions of, you know, what what's it like to be in a field that looks like you or doesn't look like you? And the ans my answers to questions change at different times in my life. And so when I was in graduate school and sort of breaking into the field and trying to become a, a full player in the scientific community, I was also, I was female, but I was also childless and uncoupled and, you know, essentially just one more of the graduate students. 
And so I didn't have any issues that related to work-life balance or family, juggling family commitments. And that sort of happened later in my life. And so now my answers are a little bit different, right? So now for me, the diversity and inclusion topics include not only getting into the field because it's welcoming and because there are people who look like me and make me realize I can do this. But once I'm in the field, then there are a whole bunch more questions about being sustainably in the field in a healthy way and juggling things like, how do you do field work when you're pregnant and have to go to the bathroom like every 90 minutes? I never thought about that when I was in graduate school. I hadn't been pregnant yet. I didn't know how often you have to pee when you're pregnant. And so (laughs) if your boss hasn't been pregnant, maybe your boss doesn't know how often you have to pee when you're pregnant, you know, or, you know, what, what it really takes to, to nurse a baby and still go to work 40 hours a week. And, you know, those sorts of things, I do think play a role in, keeping a community balanced and and keeping a a population with diversity in it and so my answer to that question has kind of changed with time and it it makes sense right it's because of what I've become exposed to I think that's a, a wonderful point that you've made and it's certainly helpful having somebody who's in like a decision making capacity to at least have empathy towards that situation, whereas it can be very tricky if maybe, you know, people are at different stages of their life and they're not able to do that. Having that, at least for different people and for younger generations to know that that you're able to talk to maybe your manager about things like that, it's it's good to see from a society standpoint, at least in my opinion. Well, I don't want to take up too much more of your time because I know we're getting close to the end of our allotted time schedule. (laughs) I just want to close this out by saying it's always a pleasure talking to you and learning more about you and your background and your science journey and the fantastic cool things that you have coming up with ACLIP. I can't wait to hear more about that (laughs) and the campaigns that you're working on. The way I normally like to close out these uh, interviews is to ask one more question. If you weren't a scientist, what do you think you would be doing today? So my, when I get fed up and quit and run away job will be to open an ice cream store that only serves flavors of chocolate. <laughs> That's my fallback. I don't think it's financially viable. I don't know that I could ever actually pull it off. But that's the thing that when I get totally stressed out, I say, you know what, I could just bag it all and go open an ice cream store that only serves chocolate. And you know what? Everybody loves ice cream. It's the thing (laughs) that we can all agree on. There's a lot of strife with everything, but having a good ice cream or a good gelato, I mean, who's going to say no to that? I mean, (laughs) exactly. Laura, thank you so much for your time and for your interview today. I really appreciate it. Oh, you're very welcome. Thanks for the conversation.